The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at zed.co.nz. And welcome to episode possibly even 11 now of the Offspin, the Spin-Offs Cricket World Cup podcast brought to you as always by Coffee Supreme. We've got a very cool episode coming up for you today. This is going to be the secret history of the 1992 World Cup, the history of the 92 World Cup that you haven't ever heard before. And we've got some very, very exciting guests to talk about that. First of all, I'd like to introduce my co-host Simon Day, who's pouring me a coffee right now. Thank you, Simon. One hour's sleep today, I reckon. I fell fell asleep on the couch sort of during those beige middle overs when uh, Baba was really consolidating and building towards a quite splendid hundred. Um, Only one mistake I can think of off the top of my head, and Tom Latham dropped it. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the guest that we've got in studio with us today is writer, broadcaster, and in my opinion, one of the great all-time New Zealand Twitter users that I've ever come across, Ali Ikram. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, considering. Yeah, considering. I, I, well, I did I did three hours sleep, so I didn't do um, as many as Simon. But, That's uh, not too yeah. bad. Did you, uh, did you sort of think about trying to get a power nap in when it looked like it was going to be rain delayed for a while? I was looking at it and I got to about over number 35 of the uh, New Zealand innings. Uh, sorry, the Pakistani innings. But I'm, 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 I'm blathering. I'm blathering completely because I've, I've, you know, I just haven't had enough sleep. No, uh, the New Zealand innings. The New Zealand innings. I watched most of the New Zealand innings and then thought... It's it's kind of in a space, yeah. Like like what Simon was saying, it's like it's in a little bit of a holding pattern right now, and we're not going to know till over number twenty five of mm. um, Pakistan batting. So yeah, I mean, like the the thing about watching cricket on the other side of the world is you do have to be able to go, okay, I'm going to check out now and and be civilized tomorrow, mm. um, but also be invested with the game. Yeah, or you could just just live off one night's sleep every two days. That's my theory, is that to survive on Earth, you actually only need to sleep once every two days. Is this some kind of primal caveman stuff that you invented yourself? Because, I mean, yeah, folk wisdom is coming back in a big way, (laughs) mostly through podcasts. (laughs) That could be my next podcast, is um, how to survive on four hours sleep. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a few people who do it. Many of them are in the clink at the moment. Mm. Um, So... That innings of New Zealand's, what do we make of the top order? Because it, it should be alarm bells ringing by now, shouldn't it? Yes, alarm bells were ringing uh, before the World Cup started and they've continued to grow in volume. Uh, what we do about it, I just don't know. But you guys are cricket nuts, right? So you watch you watch very closely, whereas there's the, the sort of fan who checks into the sport in the summer, it's a nice day in the sun, for whom much of this will be a surprise. As far as they're concerned, they were top of the table because that's the way it's been mm, reported. Mm. It's like we were top of the table. We were number one at the World Cup. But there wasn't a lot of sifting that was going on in terms of how we got there and who we were playing. And, and Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and so many of the runs so far have been Williamson. I mean, his back must be sore from all of the carrying he's been doing. You know, Taylor's been uh, okay. Nisham? very surprisingly in some people's view has been batting beautifully but I think it's pretty much been an entire batting lineup of failures apart from that hasn't it 
yeah, there's 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 three top order batsmen who are in not particularly good touch at all. Uh, the good news is that the secret to winning the World Cup is about finding form during the competition. Mm. You know, it's like it's not like you you arrive on day one with one you prepared earlier, heave it over the bench, and say we're going off to the beach um, for the rest of the tournament. You you have to find form in in the cup, mm. and that's what um, Pakistan have done is that, that they, they came in, they were completely indifferent and they're, they've managed, they're, they're, they're players are rising to the occasion, Baba's one of them, Haris Sohail, also um, Shahid Afridi, you know, I, I saw him um, start bowling and he had actually taken some tap against Australia and I thought, oh no, mm, you know, because yeah. uh, Muhammad Amir is the is the bowler that most people look to to, to take the wickets and uh, yeah, um, uh, Shahid Afridi coming on as a change I looked at it and I thought oh no you know we're, he's going to go for a few and the, the, you couldn't yeah it was I, totally the opposite thing happened mm, mm. and I think that's where your comment about the lack of nuance around the commentary around New Zealand's success so far uh, has been lacking because the same nuance hasn't been applied to Pakistan they've had a hard draw in the lead up to the game today and you can never count Pakistan out I think that team, they're a really young side. I think they're the youngest at the Cup, if, um, if I'm right. And they've had hard matches on the way in, and particularly that one against India, which is just a, a psychic um, you know, assault to the senses for all of those young yeah. men. Yeah. Because you know, when you think about it, New Zealand, we play a pressure game maybe once every few years against Australia on Australian soil, and you know, we find out what we're made of. I, I don't know whether the Black Caps play enough pressure qu- cricket and it shows in these moments where, I mean, India and Pakistan play infrequently, but when they do, uh, it, it's not, it's, it wouldn't be a pleasant experience if you, if you came home um, having been defeated. It would, it, would, it would do things to you mentally because <laughs> Pakistani cricket fans, uh, it, to, call, to call them passionate is a really nice description of yeah. what they are, yeah. is that they will make a little dummy of you and burn it in the street yeah. if you go yeah. poorly. After um, the team lost against India, um, uh, um, the captain was, uh, was 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 kind of confronted in the in a shopping mall in, in England and uh, and uh, um, fat shamed. He was fat shamed. Someone Jeez. someone actually videoed him and started screaming at him in a, in a shopping mall, and and then he became a meme because he yawned in the game against India, and that was mm. shared mm. liberally throughout the internet. Um, yeah, Safraz, uh, yawning Safraz became a meme, and yeah, I mean he he yawned at the wrong moment. I mean, like all of us yawn at certain times in our lives. I mean, maybe you might yawn during your wedding. It doesn't mean you don't lo- <laughs> love the person who's standing next to you. It's just it's just your your body had a had a response at that time, and and so. So he had that, and, and so everything gets picked over. Uh, and, and Pakistan are playing to win the World Cup, but probably more, they're playing to um, be able to go home in peace. Because mm. when you win, they're the best fans in the world. They were incredible today. Is there a big Pakistani population in Birmingham? Yeah, there would be. And there would be, um, you know, lots through the Midlands, uh, also uh, many up north. And, yeah, so they, they, they would get out and, and on, on those grounds in England and they would be assured... Um, Sixty to seventy percent, at least. Uh, I, I, I loved some of the fans. signs that they had today as well. The, um, you know, don't tell my boss I'm I've pulled a sickie. Well, they're quite smart because some of them aren't permanent signs, so they can they, they take a whiteboard because you never know how things are going to go. You know, you don't know yeah. what the appropriate yeah. thing's going to be, and, and you might bring a sign and paint it on a on a on a sheet, and it'd be completely outdated by the by the time you know your side has collapsed and and you know is going home with their tails between their legs. So yeah, you have got to be a bit smart. You have got to take the whiteboard, take the marker. <laughs> well, we mentioned it yesterday. The Pakistan run through this tournament has been alarmingly similar to the 1992 World Cup. 1992 deja vu is what I'm getting. Um, the games that they've won and lost, the rain-affected matches have fallen in exactly the same order, and they just happened to be playing New Zealand in their seventh game, which they won uh, in 1992 to qualify in that last spot for the semi-finals. I this think tour- if I can just add to that, I think both of those games were five ball victories as well. well it was the first time in 1992 as well that our um, batting really got shown up and the tail had to um, to do something. So it's it's bizarre how uh, 
how close well, to 92 yeah, this is. A lot, a lot of the press about Pakistan is that they're unpredictable. I mean, is that unpredictable? That's getting the result down to the game. And even the rain fell in exactly the right, the right game in the sequence from 1992 to, to this year. So I, I, I think that I don't think we're as unpredictable as everyone says. I think that, uh, <laughs> that, that we're, uh, we're bang on. And so uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's... It's every game on its merits, isn't it? I mean, so that that, mm, that pitch mm. that everyone was looking at at Age Baston was was one out of the box, and it felt like New Zealand went in there and said, "We're going to stay with our settled lineup," rather than looking at the pitch and saying, "Oh, it's just playing," um, because it's it's a game unto itself. It's like it's not you're not winning a tournament; you're winning a sequence of games. And and yeah, if you're confronted by by a, a kind of fifth day Test wicket. Um, you, you you play your spinner. Huge yeah, mistake. In yeah, that yeah, and it just it just speaks a little bit to uh, maybe some naivety, maybe um, the idea that psychologically they're playing this game. You know, where they're saying we're going to stick with our the players that have done us got us to this point, rather than the ones who can do the job today. And and you know, showing confidence in the in, in the in the players that are not really performing that well uh, and saying, okay, well, hopefully they can play themselves into some form. But yeah, it's just uh, just being able to just go into that match and, and look at the pitch and make some judgments based on it and bring someone in. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's so, so we've now got a side that's trying to find form against England, which, you know, might be okay. But then against Australia as well, it's, it's tough. It's mm, tough. It's mm. going to be a tough run in. And there's always that question as well of, uh, you know, the Black Caps as a as a sort of squad or setup. They like to talk about how everyone in the squad is equally as important a component as everyone else. So it really does raise the question: Why not use those people then if they're there? If they're there for a reason, yeah, what is that reason? Yeah, I think psychology in cricket has become um, a big thing, and dominating other sides has become a big thing. So it's. Uh, you know, it would have traditionally been win the toss, put the other team into bat, see what's in the pitch, and take a few early wickets. Now it's get in on the surface, irrespective of what it is, score 300 plus, and put untold pressure on the chasing team to the mm. point where if they make one or two mistakes, it's all over. And and that's the that's the modern cricket that we that we're seeing from the the teams that play IPL that um, you know have batsmen who can hit shots all around the wicket uh, and and that sort of thing but you um, it it's what we saw uh, overnight was a struggle it was a struggle it was like the last day of a test the the ball was turning like a top um, you know and you just had to get in and you just had to hang tough and it was yeah I mean New Zealand actually came out of there with a relatively credible total that they might have been able to defend if they'd been able to knock over a few in the top order well, uh, in terms of the parallels with 1992 as well, we promised that there would be a secret history of the 92 World Cup, and that was a tournament won by Pakistan. Uh, it was a tournament, I think, where many people perhaps started to see Pakistan as a serious force in world cricket as well, uh, particularly people in New Zealand probably. And it was a tournament that you, Ali, have a very, very sort of intimate, special connection to. Can you can you tell us a bit about who our other guest is going to yeah, be? Today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other guest is going to be my father, Hamid Akram. And he's a doctor. He's a cardiologist down in Christchurch and has been there for 40 years. But uh, in his spare time, he would be the li- liaison officer for the Pakistani cricket teams that toured through the 80s and 90s. And so that would mean anything from getting Abdul Qadir a haircut when he needed mm. it or arranging some medical treatment um, or... Uh, and, and, and usually uh, there would be a dinner at our house where all the players would come around. My mother, who's English, would cook them Pakistani food and they'd eat it. And, um, you know, it was in the days before match-fixing scandals and that sort of thing. So, well, but, but players were much much freer to socialise um, yeah, yeah. with with people in their, their, their tour destination rather than, um, you know, what what happens now where they get their phones taken off them and, and you know, their, their movements are closely patrolled but uh, yeah it was it was a really great time growing up um, having those greats coming through your house uh, Wazim Akram came as a 17 year old um, and progressively as he came back he matured more he became one of the greatest bowlers on the planet he became captain of the side he um, yeah just sort of 
really grew and we just saw that change in him from the 17-year-old who went and sat in the corner and didn't say nothing. Mm. Um, mm. And then and then here yeah, he became this legend of the game. Do you stay uh, in touch? <laughs> not not so much, not so much. Just, I mean, just on that point as well, uh, talking about, you know, a 17-year-old was a macrum, it's really hard to imagine because, you know, when I was growing up, he was already a great of the game. But... I mean, have Pakistan teams traditionally been quite hierarchical in terms of age and seniority in that sense? Oh, extraordinarily. Yeah, very, very hierarchical. Um, And also, uh, yeah, and and that's the nature of the society as well. So there's, but at the same time, everybody knew he was special. So he had, Mm. he he was the protege of Imran and Javed Miandad. And, you know, so if you were in favour, and you were playing well, uh, you, you were you were looked upon with great fondness. If you weren't playing well, um, you know everybody knew about it. It wasn't like a it, it wasn't like that. Uh, the the idea that uh, you know that it wasn't the the kind of Kiwi culture which you talked about, which was everybody's got their place in the team and everyone's doing a good job. It's like you know you you'll see Pakistani players glare at each other on the field when they when they <laughs> drop a catch or that sort of thing, and maybe swear at each other in Punjabi and all that sort of thing. That's that's. That's what we do. We're not a pat on the back, high five for stuffing something up kind of yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's not us. It's a, oh, we, we what the love, hell are you doing? I mean, we love to congratulate people so much when they screw up, you know? It's like that whole killing with kindness thing. It's like, <laughs> hey, great job. You tried really hard at dropping that city. You definitely tried. Yeah, you know? but that's it's, sort of the black cat way now is that, you know, the, the, the uh, Carlos Brathwaite will fall agonisingly close and, and mm. sort of fall to his knees on the pitch and Ross Taylor will come by and put his hand on his head uh, and, <laughs> and, and you know, someone will get a photo of that and put it in the paper and it'll be reported that, that, that Ross Taylor is Mother Teresa in cricket pads, yeah, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And you're, you're, you're thinking, are those the stories of this World Cup or is it Afghanistan almost knocking over India? Because... They come from a war-torn country. They very almost beat this extraordinary cricketing superpower. It, it, it almost seems like they've got a war-torn squad at the moment as well for this tournament. I mean, that, that was what was so remarkable about that India game, I think, is that, you know, we know Afghanistan are capable of taking out big teams now. They've done it quite a few times, but they hadn't looked at all close to doing that before that Indian match and so that I mean that was what was quite surprising about it they've had a captaincy change a whole lot of significant figures in their administration are like briefing against each other and yet somehow they still managed to almost pull it out yeah well but uh, life in Pakistan and Afghanistan is probably quite similar in terms of not having too many promises um, or expectations about the orderliness of you know so in in, in New Zealand you expect things to run according to plan and mm. and so you you kind of thrive in a pattern on order and and the, the team's results show it you know they back up their their uh, bowlers really well um, Mike Hesson brought in a, a lot of video and and bolt was superb during the last World Cup at bowling to that plan. You could see that they'd just worked out a batsman and he would get him either on ball one or ball two because just they, they were they were fielding to a plan, they were bowling to a plan and just really making it happen that way. Pakistanis thrive on disorder. You know, mm-hmm. there's no expectation that, that things are going to be any other way. Mm-hmm. And that's why they can be... Um, looking like they're on the way that way out, and then suddenly back the car up, turn it round, and and you know head on to victory. So yeah, it's a it, it's, it's it is part of the national character. And comparing that um, celebration of victory, <clears throat> like you mentioned with Carlos Brathwaite, my big memory is uh, Javed Mendad going crazy with his white helmet when they won the '92 uh, semi final and kissing the turf and. And I don't see anything wrong with that, uh, you know, despite Rod Latham crying next to him, that insane passion for, for winning that, that they had that day. Yeah, I mean, uh, Javid reminds me a lot of Safraz, you know. They're, they're cut from the same cloth. They fight. They fight every inch of the way. And if you play them, you'll know you're in a contest. They'll always give their best. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, when that that victory was the last hurrah for quite a few of those senior players, including Imran Khan, uh, and y- y- yeah, it, it was 
that that idea. And, and it's interesting to hear you say that uh, that that was kind of the arrival of Pakistan as a as a credible cricketing force in one day international cricket. You're right. Um, and so that, that's you're seeing excitement in those pictures, but you're also seeing great relief. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. That idea that yeah, that um, that we we did it, we did it. I mean, backs against the wall. The wounded tigers speech that Imran Khan gave, um, you know, as they were on their way out. Wasn't that in the basement of your house? Well, uh, there's some dispute over that. I asked the uh, I asked the, um, the, uh, the the Pakistani management about that when they toured once, and and. Uh, they said that uh, that that happened in Perth, but he definitely gave one speech mm. to the team in the basement of our house before they went out in Christchurch and beat, beat New Zealand. So uh, I and don't he know had what... his tiger T-shirt on all the time yeah. at that point. <laughs> Should we call your dad? I'm worried he's sitting yeah, by the phone. I, yeah, and... no, he I think he we should gone call him and, and put that question to him as well because I mean that that would be fascinating. Okay, so joining us on the line is Mr. Hamid Ikram, who was a cardiologist and the liaison officer for the Pakistani cricket team. Hamid, it is such a pleasure to have you on the line with us. Great pleasure for me too. I'll, I'll go first, Hamid. My, my name is Simon, and as a six-year-old boy, um, as listeners will have heard many times before, I had my life shaped by the 1992 World Cup. I have been told by Ali that you had quite a key role in the Pakistan team's um, sort of logistics uh, during that tournament. Can you tell us a a little about what you did? Well, yes, uh, with all due modesty, I don't think I was absolutely fantastically vital. Uh, But my relationship with Pakistani cricket extends really from the birth of Pakistan, which is 1948. Mm. But I won't bore you with all the details of all that. But that's really why I have become such a uh, an interested party in their campaign, although I haven't lived in Pakistan for over 40 years. But in 1992, as liaison officer appointed by New Zealand cricket, I had the pleasure of hosting the Pakistani side in my house in Christchurch. This was a regular event, but the lead up was that Pakistan had been doing abysmally. They were pretty much out of the competition and save for one point in a very one-sided but rain-abandoned match against England, they wouldn't even have been in contention. So there they were. They were down in the mouth, depressed. Even the high commissioner who'd been at Cambridge with my brother confessed to me that he was pleased that they'd won the last um, game just. But... It was such a disappointment. So, you know, everybody didn't expect them to do anything. But the message I got from the manager in Tikab from Perth was, could you get a video of Deepak Patel bowling? (laughs) And I said, that seemed to be an extraordinarily ridiculous thing to ask. Firstly, because nobody reckoned much to Deepak Patel's bowling and even less to the idea that he was opening the bowling for New Zealand. This Mm. was a Martin Mm. Crow innovation. However, I said I hadn't got one, but he said Graham Dowling, who was the head of New Zealand cricket and and a guy I knew well from Christchurch, would be able to procure one. So we had a team meeting after my wife's wonderful dinner, which they all enjoyed in my library where we played Deepak Patel's rather, (laughs) I'm sorry to insult the poor man because he did a wonderful (laughs) job, but it wasn't very impressive, you know, slow left arm, barely turning and, you know, opening the bowling with a new ball. However, he was effective. So they watched all this and next day the game started. This was in Lancaster Park as was. And I was sitting downstairs with uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Tony McGibbon, former New Zealand test player, and um, Subha Rao of the great uh, British MCC, Peter May type era. We were chatting away and Pakistan opened the batting and um, um, didn't 
do terribly well. They lost uh, uh, one batsman out to a, what should have been a no ball, and then the next batsman in Zimamul Haq got dismissed for practically nothing. And I said to my friends, I said, I better go up there and sit there beside the team uh, because, you know, they needed probably moral support from me, but nothing else. However, uh, Ramiz Raja and, uh, and uh, Javed Miandad steered the thing around, and Pakistan won. But there's a prelude even to that because Javed was not in the best of health. He firstly damaged his back on the previous tour, which I looked after him in Christchurch. Then, against all odds, he would join the World Cup competition, having been left out of the initial selection. And when he arrived in Christchurch, he had some terrible stomach problems. He had cramps, he had sickness. And in fact, I had to get one of my medical colleagues to look at him because he was in such a fragile state before the game started. Um, so he miraculously recovered at least enough to make a partnership with Ramiz Raja, and they won the game. Still, it wasn't done and dusted, because when they got on the team bus to go to the hotel, the hinge, the Pakistan appearance in the semi-final hinged on a match across the Tasman between Australia and the West Indies. And Australia... Um, had to beat the West Indies to actually give Pakistan a chance to stay in. So I was speaking to Imran Khan, who exuded confidence, and I said to Imran, doesn't look very good, the chances, because West Indies are playing Australia, and in those days, West Indies were probably are not their usual side, but they were not to be dismissed. But Imran waved his arms about, oh, no, no, there's no doubt about it. The Australians will beat them and so on and so forth. And so the game started at, across the Tasman and looked like the West Indies were going to win and Pakistan would be out. So I uh, was rung by the manager who said, could I get in touch with the coach driver so that he could fix a time to arrive because he had to give the boys a little speech to say, look, guys, you've done your best and we've unfortunately failed to qualify for the World Cup and we are now going home directly from Christchurch. Anyway, I kept watching the game because the driver wasn't very good at ringing back promptly. So I was watching this game and the West Indies, despite looking like they were going to win, suddenly lost. And I rang Intikhab's room, which was, um, you know, uh, full of apparently, I mean, I was just hearing noise in there. And a voice answered, delirious, said, congratulations to me. And I said, what are you congratulating me for? He said, well, we're in the semifinal. So I said, well, you know, well done. And so you probably won't be needing the driver to take you to the airport for Pakistan. You'd be, no, no, he said, we are going to Auckland for the semifinal. So that was how they got into the semi-final. Then you know yourself the story of '92 semi-final in Auckland, where they still show shell shock pictures of uh, Dick Lee, Rod Latham, and various people who lost the game despite having it in their grasp. We were just and I think Martin Crowe, to, Martin Crowe to his dying day said that if he'd been captain on the field, they wouldn't have lost. However. They'd lost. So then they went to uh, Australia, and there was a final between England and Pakistan. And once again, things were not going according to the script. But once again, Javid Ni and Dad, while vomiting on the side of the pitch and not being well, held the whole thing together, and him and Imran made a, a satisfactory partnership, and they won the World Cup. But it wasn't, as I say, clear. It was typical Pakistan in the, uh, this one minute and up in the clouds the next minute. So I, that's a short version of what happened to me in that particular tournament. That roller coaster ride that is Pakistan, I think we're starting to see a lot of similarities between <laughs> 1992 and 2019. Do you yeah. think Pakistan is too easily written off and that they do have that potential to, to beat anyone on their day and they're, they're starting to show that now? Yeah, uh, this is the trouble with Pakistan both as a cricket team and I, I must sad to say nationally, they reach heights which people wouldn't dream they had it in them and then they against all odds when it looks like it's all clear and dusted, they drop to the depths which 
surprises even them, but certainly gives their supporters quite a lot of heartache in the process. Um, today, you see the similarity. There was a left-arm fast bowler, which nobody knew anything about, called Wazim Akram, and he's been voted by all the fast bowlers as the best ever, you know, including the West Indian greats. So that's what was the kind of talent they have. Now, this guy, Shahin Shah Fridi, uh, he's a Pathan, you can see that, very fair, very tall, very strong, and these Pathans are the... Uh, constant discoveries, although Wasim was not a Pathan, he was a Punjabi, but the, they, they get these guys, and he's a left-arm fast bowler. I mean, I don't know how many teams have got three left-arm quicks. I mean, there's Amir, there's Wasim Akram, uh, not Wasim Akram, Shanshah Fridi, and then there's Wahab Riyaz, all doing around about 138, 140Ks, and sometimes even more. But the talent lies in the accuracy and stuff. Now, that deserts them, but more importantly, if the fielding lets them down, they lose the game. Uh, I don't know if you saw the list of dropped catches, but top of the pops is dear old Pakistan, 15 catches. And below that, immensely surprising, is England with 14. You know, a, a ranked fielding side. But as the guy said... To drop catches, you firstly got to have them. So the bowlers actually do the job and produce the chances, but the fieldsmen drop them. And this particular day, they didn't. Well, tomorrow might be a different story. So a lot of people um, would know of Imran Khan now as the president of Pakistan, perhaps if they don't follow cricket too closely, but do follow geopolitics or or something. But, uh, you know, when uh, when you met him during those times, did you get the sense of him that he was someone who was, uh, I don't know, destined for greatness or or someone who was going to go on to be such a significant figure uh, on, on the world stage in quite a few different ways? Well, as I say, my little uh, snippet to your son, Tahir, on the cricket ground in Christchurch was that on this very ground, Imran Khan and I had a partnership of 39 runs against uh, Richard Hadley's team. So, oh, yeah, tell yeah, us about I, that. I mean, uh, eh? Oh, tell us about that game. How because, many of uh, those runs did you score? I scored nine and he scored 30, but he did applaud a couple of my shots. Anyway, no, the point is that Imran has always been an enigma. His persona, particularly in the Western um, press and so forth, has always been very much higher than his uh, his. Uh, well, I suppose opponents uh, um, um, have said in the Pakistan political arena, and certainly they didn't expect him to reach the heights that he has reached. But then that's the story, isn't it? Nobody expected him to win the World Cup in 92, which he did, and so forth. But I'll tell you a little aside, which might give you some idea. We were playing in Christchurch, the very match that I'm telling you about, where we had this partnership. And he was due to go to speak somewhere else. And I got a phone call from the oncologist, the lady who looks after cancer patients, saying that there was a young New Zealand boy who had developed cancer, just been diagnosed, Mm -hmm. enormous depression on the whole family about this diagnosis. And could I bring Imran to meet him? Because that would give him a huge uplift. So I said to him, Ryan, look, you know, there's nothing in it for you. This is no publicity. It's going to be a private meeting. So can you just do this as a favor? So he said, fine. Although he admitted that since his mother had died of cancer, they had a great problem in his family of meeting cancer patients. Mm. However, he turned up. He spoke to the boy. He was magnificent. And he actually said to the lad, he said, you'll get better. He said it as if, you know, this was a done deal. You will get better because you live in New Zealand, which has the most wonderful facilities for looking after cancer patients. So the little kid said, and and can you give me your autograph? And he said, no, I can't give you my autograph. I'll do something better. I've just written a book. It was called The Warrior Race. It was about the Patans and his background. And he said, I'll autograph it. And he said to me, Hamid, you give give this to, to the boy tomorrow. And he said to the boy, and when you recover, you will look back on this time as a period when you became stronger 
and a better cricketer and a better human being. So having dispensed, there were all the whole staff, the nursing staff were in tears, the family was in tears, all sorts of people were hugely emotionally overcome. So you can see the effect he has. Anyway, the story had a very happy ending, at least temporarily, from my point of view, because next day we were in Wellington and the message came through from my uh, friend who was looking after this guy as a patient, this kid, and said that he'd gone into remission. You know, it's almost like miraculous stuff. So anyway, the the thing is that he does have this. Yeah, this is this is the kind of effect he has. Because shortly before that, he'd been to a church service. We'd had a service in Christchurch called Charity Through Sport, where different faiths were represented. And he, quite off the cuff, had to come and speak as a Muslim, and he said something that was so appropriate that the entire, I mean, this was at St. Barnabas in Christchurch, and the whole church was full, and the area around the church was full. It was the biggest audience I think they've ever had, because there was an outside television screen and so forth. So he has an enormous capacity for sensing what the appropriate thing is and, and, and speaking appropriately. So I'm not surprised that he's got there, but, you know, his image that he's a playboy and he's not really serious and politically he's lightweight. I think people have accused him of all sorts of things, but I don't think anybody has ever accused him of being corrupt. Mm. And that has been mm. one of the major problems in Pakistan politics, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a country that's, well, like most Asian countries, has this under belly of corruption. Well, not to draw unfair stereotypes or anything, but it, it has been an issue for the Pakistani cricket team as well, uh, corruption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, it, it seems like that... they've come through that somewhat now. Well, the problem with, with the Pakistan cricket team, I mean, again, I'm digressing into areas that I'm not an expert on, so I frankly admit that. But what you can see People say, well, Pakistan is hopeless, Pakistan's good, Pakistan this, Pakistan's that. But when you look back, this is a 50-over tournament, right? A short game. And in this short game, about, I don't know how many years ago, Pakistan won the Champions Trophy against India. You would, they were given the title of, you know, world champions for that particular format. But nobody allows them to play in India because of appropriate political thing. I mean, I don't know about that. But since the Mumbai episode, there have been no contact and Pakistanis are not allowed to play in India. So you would have this IPL, which everybody is busting a gut to play in. Apart from the money side, these people who are playing in this tournament have been playing against each other for months, you know? Mm. I mean, the South Africans, the British, the New Zealanders, Australians, they all play in the IPL. They know the strengths and weaknesses of their various opponents. So the Pakistanis don't. So they've come in without any prior knowledge, apart from what they see on television, to play them in a World Cup. Secondly, they don't have a home series. They don't have a home base. They play in the UAE, sand, desert, etc., not mm. their home ground. So with all these incredible disadvantages, they still manage to turn up a performance from time to time, admittedly, not all the time, but they, you know, just shows you that the raw talent that comes through, even without all the support and the finances, is still very much present. Has the animosity that exists between the Indian and Pakistani governments, does that extend to communities of Indian and Pakistani people uh, living in countries like New Zealand or, or you know, outside of those two countries? Absolutely not. You see, the, I mean, as I say, in my position as liaison officer, I've had opportunities to meet or at least not meet, but see the interrelationships, albeit at a distance. And there's complete respect and civil behavior between all these various players, the Indians and Pakistanis particularly, because they don't, you know, carry this animosity even onto the cricket field. You know, you've seen mm-hmm. gestures of sportsmanship in in, in, in New Zealand against 
when the latest one being Carlos Branthwaite being patted on the head. Uh, but there are similar episodes with India and Pakistan games. Uh, and as for the communities, they're often much closer. I mean, you know, we, we, we've had lots and lots of interactions between Indians and Pakistanis uh, in um Mm. Um, New Zealand, where where people have got on exceedingly well. So it's a political thing, which is deliberately, I think, uh, well, it may not be deliberate, but it seems to be related more to local geopolitics rather than the fact that one has a passionate hatred for the other. I mean, divisions exist and so forth. I wonder as well if there's anything to do uh, with the idea that, you know, Indian and Pakistani people in New Zealand both face very similar animosity at times from uh, from Pakeha New Zealanders as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the average uh, Pakeha uh, New Zealander can pick the difference. You know, he, <laughs> to them, they all look the same. And uh, he's not going to, unless he knows them exceptionally well, realize that one's one religion or one country, the other. And then in New Zealand, it's even more confusing because a lot of people who are Indian racially are actually from Fiji. And so, you know, they're not actually Indian Indians, they're Fijian Indians. So how do you start making all these subtle distinctions when you don't have everyday contact with that particular community? So I think it, it, it's a problem. But, you know, what I'm saying is that if you want to be prejudiced against brown-skinned people, it doesn't matter where they come from or what religion they worship, you're going to be prejudiced. You know, I mean, that's the nature of prejudice. It's not particularly rational. Yes, very true. But, but I think cricket, um, in many ways, has done a really good job of bringing people together. I thought um, the game between India and Pakistan at the World Cup was a real antidote to all the things that are going on uh, politically. And I've met so many uh, wonderful Indians and Pakistanis at cricket games, and I think it's a great way to get to know each other. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if you recall, but many, many years ago when they first had an Indian team touring Pakistan. There were all sorts of fears that there would be riots, there'd be mass murder, there'd be this, there'd be that. I mean, I'm talking about a long time ago when they first toured, India first toured. India did extremely well. They performed well and they beat Pakistan. And as they walked off the field, they got a standing ovation from a very large crowd. I think it was in Karachi, but it may have been in Lahore. So what I'm saying is they are not that one-eyed and blinkered to the point of prejudice against great performances. And they applaud uh, real good stuff. I mean, I'm sure if Sachin Tendulkar walked down the street, he'd be given a, a, a rapturous ovation. But yeah, anyway, I, but I've this, seen a, um, a video of, I believe, uh, Pakistan had just beaten India in Chennai in a test, yeah. and they're doing a lap of honour around the field, and the crowd is giving them a standing ovation as well, and it's it's honestly yeah. one of the most inspiring videos on the internet, I think. Yeah, well, somebody said that when Sachin Tendulkar is facing up to Wasim Akram, the television audience exceeds the entire population of Europe. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the sobering thought that it's that sort of uh, draw, these games, for for the committed. Hamid, an ongoing theme of our podcast is the way that cricket has defined our relationship with our fathers. I was wondering if you could tell us if Ali has lived up to your hopes and dreams as a cricketer? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, my hopes and dreams are quite irrational, I think. But the thing is that that, uh, whatever you do, you have a number of lessons. And I don't know if I can answer your your question in the exact words, but many years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But 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 no, I mean I think that you know you enjoy the game, you enjoy the comradeship, you enjoy the the business of physical exercise and so forth. But many years ago, if I can go back into my memory bank, when I was roughly well a bit younger than you. I had a, a man called Abdul Aziz, who was untutored, probably minimal education at a, in a formal sense, but he had played 
representative cricket without being a test player, but he had played Ranji Trophy cricket in India before partition. And he came to Pakistan, and he used to be a talent scout. So he was called chachas, which is the, our word for uncle. So these uncles used to be in the major cricket-playing uh, cities in Pakistan, Lahore, Karachi mainly. And they'd go from game to game looking at schoolboys who were regarded as potentially promising. And his claim to fame was that he discovered Hanif Muhammad. Mm. Well, as you may or may not, well, I'm sure you do, but because I've talked about it often enough, Hanif and I were in the same school age group. We were in the same club. Uh, and he discovered Hanif, who as a schoolboy at the age of 16, made 300 odd runs against the West Indies in the days of their glory. So he was no, I mean, he was a phenomenon. He just died a year or so ago. But anyway, Hanif was discovered by this guy and he took an interest in me. And and so uh, he was interviewed by somebody in an article for Wisdom about cricket and what it does. And he said, what I've paraphrased now, that, you know, to those who think it's just a game, have missed the point. It's actually a great thing for building character, for giving you fortitude, the ability to cope with adversity, and this all omnibus word, you know, sportsmanship. So mm. it tells you a lot of life things. And as you may recall from that famous poem, Vita Lampada by Sir Henry Newbold, you know, the breathless hush in the close tonight, tend to make and the last man in is not for the sake of a ribboned coat or the hope of a season's fame, but the captain's hand on his shoulder smote. Play up, play up and play the game. I mean, these kinds of sentiments were rampant when I was a schoolboy. You know, it was all British Empire and doing your best and playing for the team rather than for yourself. All those things. So, I, I remember yeah. I remember you taking us out, uh, my my brother Omar and I to the nets at Sunnyside Hospital, which is a, a, a mental hospital that was the home ground of the hospital cricket team that uh, Dad played for. And he'd take us to the nets, and we could have only been about eight years old, and we'd get into our pads, and he'd bowl on that concrete wicket at us. Uh, full pace? Full pace. Full adult <laughs> pace. And he wanted us to, to be able to handle it. And I don't think I ever... Um, got anywhere close to um, playing any great stand of cricket. However, there was one episode of Campbell Live where Auckland Cricket got a new bowling machine and the producer wanted me to go and face it live on TV and had no idea what kind of damage a ball travelling at 140 can do to you and it would be fired out like a gun and all you would hear was... And then it would be... And you would have a fraction of a second to react and play your shot, um, and they put it at 140, and then they racked it up to 150, and they got it to 164, and I was still getting bat on it. And despite the fact I probably never lived up to my to my dad's <laughs> ideas of what what uh, what a what a cricket you know what what a cricketer with the name of Kram should be, uh, when I was put in that situation, I could handle it, he and I could I could handle it yeah. because of those days down at the nets with him bowling full adult pace at me, and yeah, so you never know, you never know, and and, and I think he's right. I mean, all of these things, it's like you know, you might go on to represent your province, you might go on to represent your school, you might even be lucky enough to play for your country, but uh, there's a whole lot of us who are just out there, and uh, it, it's been something that's given us a, a spine. Mm. Well, that is immense character, isn't it? Uh, to um, uh, you know, to be able to take a terrible idea from a producer and turn it into television gold. Not yeah. that that wasn't uh, ever put on the internet, and it was kind of interesting because people had just watched it live, and mm. uh, people would come up to me and say, you know, I'd be standing at the the urinal at Wellington Airport, and 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 someone would be tapping their foot saying. When are you joining the Black Caps, Ali? <laughs> I'd go out to another story where something tragic had happened, and a, and a, and a dad at the beach would be like, you, "You should be, you should be doing that professionally." And it was like, you know, and I, but it, they, they had to have all watched it live, so people were tuning in to, yeah. to watch my imminent demise to see to see the thing, yeah, kind of tear into my lifeless body. 
but it didn't happen. And, and I, owe it all to, I owe it all to my father. <laughs> like the Pakistani tuition. cricket team, like all the, against all the odds you prevailed. Yeah, well, that's it. How you react under pressure. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Hamid, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. The last thing I'd like to know from you, who do you think will win the World Cup? <laughs> well, you know, it's the old story, hearts and heads, isn't it? And I mean, you know, uh, it's possible. And in fact, I think uh, reasonably possible that New Zealand will have a good crack. Uh, the English were fancied greatly because of all sorts of reasons, and yet it turns out that they might not be as well fancied. So I think India is still my pick to win the World Cup, but mm. it might be on the day. You see what happens is you get an injury, you get a guy, I mean, as Mark and Crow found in the semi final in Auckland in 92, he ripped his muscle running, and that was the end of the story. So similarly, you only need one guy, key person, and uh, many key people in the Indian team who might not be, uh, I mean, I'm not wishing them any ill, but, you know, it's the fate. Secondly, you don't know what's going to happen. Yesterday against New Zealand, the Pakistanis got a pitch which was really very much like their own games in Sharjah. It was old, it was dusty, it was taking spin, and they were obviously doing well. But the thing is, so the, all of these come in, and of course in England, where I've had the good fortune to play a lot, it's the weather. It's really, a, you know, it just does all sorts of crazy things. So I don't know, but the answer is on the form, it's probably going to be between India, uh, Australia, England, and always never, never, never discount Pakistan because well, if they turn up on their day, they can beat anybody. They've got two must-win games coming up and I yeah, honestly yeah. wouldn't be surprised to see them take out both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Because when they get on, you know, that famous statement that Imran made which turned them round, he said, just play like wounded, cornered tigers. Can we just and he ask... had a T-shirt made with a tiger on it, and they had those given out. And he, he just turned to Wasim Ikram. He said, "Forget about no balls. Forget about anything. Just run up and bowl as fast as you can." And I saw those two deliveries that won them the World Cup: one that castled Lamb, and the other one that the next ball castled Chris Lewis. And that was the end of the World Cup final. So that's all it takes. So I don't know, but you know, it's be very interesting because we've reached the interesting stage of the competition. Can we just ask one more question? We we understand that uh, Imran Khan made a very inspirational speech in your basement. Uh, is that is that true? Well, yeah, he he did make. It wasn't so much a speech because the whole team was sat there, and I think at that stage they had really kind of. It was the night before the game versus New Zealand. And it was a must-win game. You keep saying must-win. They always have must-win <laughs> games because they land themselves in that situation. So they had to beat New Zealand the following day in Lancaster Park. Then they had to beat New Zealand, of course, in uh, Eden Park in Auckland the day after that. And then, of course, they had to win the finals. They had three must-win games all in a row. So he just stood there and pointed out exactly what he thought was necessary to do to win all this and didn't need to say much because I think by that stage they'd roused themselves from this lethargy and then they proceeded to win the next three games so you know that's what what he did say I mean I can't translate it from the Urdu but that was what it was meant to be just as I said the right thing to say at the right moment Mm. Well, thank you so much, Hamid Akram. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Pleasure. My pleasure. Hope all goes well. Thank you. Right. So You didn't that... say goodbye to your dad. No, that's right. It's, uh, we'll, we'll, don't worry. We'll catch up later. We talk regularly on a, you know, doesn't doesn't everyone talk to their parents on a Sunday night? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I shouldn't say that in case my mother is listening because I, I sometimes yeah, skip raise weeks. some expectations that you can't deliver to. Yeah. Um, look, that uh, that was an incredibly interesting conversation. What a life, you know? What a life to have led. Oh yes. No. I mean, he's uh, he 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 knows his cricket inside out. 
he's been down in Christchurch for 40 years uh, and it's just very well connected and and yeah I mean and, and so those experiences that that, that happen through childhood um, uh, are just uh, yeah just just the the names of, of the the players that came through our house are, mm. they're, they're legends of the game and and yeah I mean it's just that's why I was we needed to have him on this podcast was that that he just knows all those stories and just uh, just can just can go like mm. that he just a, goes he's a yarn god it's incredible indeed indeed and look it, uh, should we should we start to wrap up here as well because I think we're probably enormously over time uh, but when the story is good you've just got to let it go. Oh, and such well, I didn't realise that there was a, such a thing as overtime with a podcast. I thought, you know, Alex you could, you, likes to keep it tight. I'd like to yeah, go for hours. Yeah, yeah radio yeah. background. You know, I'm always thinking, oh, there must be an ad break coming up soon, but yeah. there never is. Well, I mean, if it's not three hours long, you're not getting that brainwashing of the audience effect. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, if there was any brainwashing, uh, one of the things I've really enjoyed is quite hammy segues, actually, to the sponsor. And if there is any brainwashing that we've been doing, it's definitely uh, for the fine coffee of Coffee Supreme. Which, which we have uh, a little gift for Ali here. Some, thank you very much. Some Brazil Bobo Link, caramel and hazelnut buttery and nutty notes. It's very sporting of you to give me this. Um, I feel like I should probably be giving you a present for... Um, well, your dad was a gift to all our listeners. Mm. Oh, I just think that there's uh, a, a secret history to us Pakistanis down in Christchurch that, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, needs to be told. Mm. And um, mm. to me, it's it's just really a privilege to be able to be on this podcast and get it recorded and just, you know, just let people know we were there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, that's the other amazing thing about it in a way, like 40 years... As it were, that's uh, the roots that he must have in the community would be so so deep as a result of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I just remember going through going through town with him um, on a Saturday morning, and you know, you couldn't get to one side of City Mall to the other without being stopped by about three or four people who were patients, and you know, mm, just mm. just the enormous respect for him that they have down there in Christchurch because you know he turned up, he did a job. Um, he did it well, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of love for him. Mm, mm. Well, it's, it was an absolute privilege to talk to him in that sense. Well, thank you so much for making that happen, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's been a really fun conversation. It's always fun when Pakistan is involved, uh, no matter what happens. Yeah, I just, I just hope it's helped you process some of what happened last night. I mean, it was grim, but of all the teams to lose to for the first time at the World Cup, I'm actually kind of happy it was Pakistan uh, because it keeps the tournament alive. Uh, it offers the possibility that England might be eliminated now that Pakistan has won, which I'm very, very, you know, in a schadenfreude sort of way, I'm very, very much looking forward to them completely bottling it at their own World Cup. Uh, but it's, <laughs> I mean, come on! It would be funny. It would be funny. But as well as that, you know, the way that Pakistan play cricket—it's it, just so exciting to watch. Always, uh, always a lot of fun to watch, and the passion of it as well. You know, it's it's such a nice contrast to uh, the really cold, kind of almost robotic way that New Zealand plays at times. So I, I'm glad that Pakistan beat us. I, I just adore the way Pakistan does cricket from the players to the the fans. I was really lucky to, to visit Pakistan and um, up in the northern area in the Hunza Valley, I was riding around in my 1992 World Cup uh, shirt and on the back of public transport and people would be yelling out at me about how Imran Khan's cornered tigers took down Martin Crow's young guns and we would bond over that and then I was um, drafted into a schoolboy team to play in a in a village tournament and there's just so much joy that cricket brings to that nation and they're, they're so willing to share it. Well, the experiences that I've heard of New Zealanders going... So, so when I visited Pakistan, it was go to a different relative's house every night mm. and it was quite formal and, you know, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother and, and, and hanging out. But the, the experiences I hear of New Zealanders who have just gone there to backpack are amazing and it is that hospitality that you hear about um, of just complete strangers recognising a cricket shirt or mm. you know someone who looks a little bit different and just opening their homes and 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 yeah it's 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 the yeah new zealanders um who've traveled to pakistan 
usually come back with pretty good stories. Indeed. Well, Ali Akram, it's been a pleasure having you on this episode of The Offspin. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. And uh, the next one that we've got for you is going to be on Sunday morning with, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Samuel Flynn Scott. The, the artist who makes our beautiful uh, intro and outro music. He does. He does. And that'll be after the Australia game. So if New Zealand's had another loss, that could be an interesting one to tune into. And it might all be falling apart. A couple of episodes ago, we were sure we were in the semis, and suddenly it's not so certain. It's very yeah. exciting. Things can change. Things can change in an instant. Yeah. you just got to hang tight. Yep. And while we're waiting for that game to happen, let's all just cross our fingers that Colin Munro gets dropped. That was the offspin for another episode. Pakistan Zindabad. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Kia ora e te Kia Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.